I want to call your attention to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5 as we continue to look at the portion called the Sermon on the Mount and the opening verses in it that are known as the Beatitudes or we might say the Blesseds. And we come today to verse 6. Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. <clears throat> and may the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. The Lord speaks here in terms that we are familiar with. We know what it is to be hungry and thirsty. And someone who is very hungry and very thirsty is normally pitied and is the least likely to be considered as happy or blessed or fortunate. We would say <clears throat> The happy one, the blessed one, is the one who is never hungry and never thirsty, but always has plenty. And so what the Lord says here, again, comes as something of a surprise. He says, those who are hungry and thirsty are the ones who are happy, blessed, fortunate, he introduces here a good hunger and thirst. He speaks, of course, of spiritual things, not of temporal things, of spiritual hunger and thirst. A hunger and thirst after righteousness, not a physical hunger and thirst. According to historians, People in Palestine in the first century could not have imagined the kind of plenty and abundance in earthly things and in food that we enjoy today. One writer said something like this, Jesus' audience here in Galilee hovered somewhere between hunger and starvation as a rule. And that's why the feast days were such big occasions for uh, the Jewish people. Normally, uh, they, they lived on a very meager and simple diet. They knew something about hunger and thirst. Today, of course, in our part of the world, we really don't know what it is to be hungry. We miss a meal or maybe a meal is an hour or two behind schedule and we think we're hungry. <laughs> we're not hungry. We don't know what it is to be hungry or thirsty. Food and water are so plentiful today. In fact, instead of people dying from starvation in our culture, people are dying from overeating. And that's no exaggeration. 
It is not that way in other parts of the world, of course. And we should be thankful for the physical food and water that we have. But in spiritual terms, spiritual hunger and thirst today are about as rare as physical hunger and thirst in our culture. And so let us see what the Lord has to say here. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now what is the righteousness that he's talking about here? Righteousness is a word used frequently in the scriptures, and yet it is a word that is used uh, only in that context. It's not a word that we use in our ordinary daily conversation. We use the word right, but not the word righteous or righteousness. Well, our English word literally means right wise or in a right state we might say in other words upright or proper and the greek term likewise means the same it means to be upright it means to be in conformity to the law of god that is to be in a state of conformity to the law of God, and thus to be acceptable to God, and to be accepted then by Him. Righteousness is the state of one who is as he ought to be in God's sight. To be upright, to be proper, to be right wise now in the word of god the word righteousness is used in one bad way and in two good ways the bad way of course is self-righteousness what jesus calls Uh, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees here in verse 20 of Matthew 5. Self-righteousness is never a good thing. Self-righteousness is what we are to repent of and turn from. But in a good and proper sense, the Bible speaks of righteousness as First of all, imputed righteousness, and second, imparted righteousness. And though those words sound similar, the difference of meaning is very profound. Imputed righteousness is the perfect obedience of Christ, the perfect uprightness of Christ, which he wrought as a man in the life that he lived and the death that he died, (coughs) which is credited to the sinner who believes on Christ. And that being credited to the believer is the 
imputation of righteousness. And it is a two-way event. Our sin is credited to him, his righteousness credited to us. Because our sin was credited to him, he died. Because his righteousness is credited to us, we live eternally. Eternal life. The imputed righteousness of Christ is the basis of salvation and is the basis of a right standing with God. But then the term is also used in some places in Scripture to speak of imparted righteousness. That is, personal holiness of life, sanctification, good works. This is not the basis of our acceptance with God, but it is an evidence of our acceptance with God. It is the work of the Spirit within us. Imparted righteousness is incomplete in us. It is incomplete in the very most uh, mature and godly Christian. Until we are with Christ in glory, in that glorified state. And then personal holiness will be complete and it will be perfect. And there, we will not have any sin in heaven, if we can say it that way. <clears throat> so there is that righteousness which Christ wrought, which is put to our account that we might be saved. And there is that personal obedience which God works in us having come to Christ by faith. Now, the question is, which one is Christ talking about here? Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. <clears throat> well, this is a a challenging question because most of the Sermon on the Mount focuses on the second righteousness, that personal holiness, obedience to God, what in the previous hour was described as good works. Look even here at the Beatitude in verse 10, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. What righteousness is it that brings persecution upon us? Well, it is personal holiness. And again, verse 20, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. And immediately he launches into this exposition of the law of God in various respects and the, the spiritual application of it and the whole emphasis of this sermon is upon personal obedience, the inward motives, and the outward deeds as well. <clears throat> Again, verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. All the way through this sermon, there is this emphasis upon personal godliness. 
our conduct, our behavior, our thoughts, our deeds. He says towards the end in chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And so that consideration might lead us to think that the righteousness Christ is speaking of here in this beatitude is imparted righteousness, personal righteousness. But I would point out that at least in chapter 6 and verse 33, I think we can make a case that the righteousness in view here is in fact Christ's righteousness that is imputed to us who believe on him. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The fact that it's called his righteousness in contrast to uh, your righteousness in chapter 5 verse 20 Uh, leads me to think that there is at least some uh, hint here in this sermon at Christ's righteousness that is imputed to the believer. Some have taken the view that the term is used here really in a more generic way without the distinction between imparted righteousness and imputed righteousness. So that what Christ is, is saying is, uh, blessed are those, happy are those who love God's will and obedience to God's will, wherever it may be found. Happy are those who long to be free from sin and who are opposed to sin in every form and fashion. But I must say, I tend to think that The Lord is speaking especially here of, number one, the imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, which we are to seek after and hunger and thirst for. We need what God requires of us that we might have fellowship with him. We need that perfect conformity to his will, perfect conformity to his law. We need this righteousness that he requires of all who will have fellowship with him. And so I'm going to approach it that way. Let's ask this question, why should we hunger and thirst after righteousness? Well, the answer is all too obvious. It's because in ourselves, we are unrighteous. We have no righteousness naturally on our own. By birth, we come into this world, even before birth, at the moment of conception, We are unrighteous in the sight of God. We are sinners in Adam. And so there is none righteous. No, not even one. We read in Romans chapter 3, and that is taken 
as a quotation from Psalm 14 as well as Psalm 53. There's none righteous. We are all sinners. And we are all in sin. We are far from upright. We're far from what we ought to be. We are full of sin and disobedience. We're not upright. We're crooked. We are in bondage to sin. Our hearts are slaves to sin. And though we make little efforts to improve ourselves, these feeble attempts always fail. And even if we get mastery over one sin, we only fall right into another. And our feeble attempts to improve ourselves do not impress God at all. This is why we need righteousness. We need a righteousness, a perfection that meets God's standard. Now, as with all of these Beatitudes, this one is offensive to natural man. Because it tells us what we don't want to hear. It tells us that we are wrong. It tells us that we are unrighteous and that we need a righteousness. And that we should have a longing and a desire for that which we don't have to be right with God. Naturally, we deceive ourselves and we think highly of ourselves we have an inflated opinion of ourselves we're pretty happy with ourselves and we assume that because we are happy with ourselves God must be also and that is a deception we imagine that it's an insult to us that God should require absolute perfection why nobody's perfect but I'm better than most people, or I'm, I'm as good as the average at least. Haven't made any headlines for my sins. God's not that strict. Well, if he were, no one would make it to heaven. I'm certainly not an evil criminal. Well, That's not much comfort because God himself is perfect. And the fact is, many will not make it to heaven. None will make it to heaven who die in their sin. And we can tell ourselves little stories that Give us temporary comfort about ourselves. But that's not in keeping with God's truth. A statement like this from the Lord Jesus Christ offends our natural pride. Because it tells us that we're lacking something. A natural man doesn't want to be told that. He doesn't want to sense that there's an emptiness 
or anything lacking in any serious way. He refuses any sense of something vital that's missing. He refuses to be desperate. And so he's not hungry for righteousness. He doesn't have a longing for perfection. He's content to be imperfect. He avoids conviction of sin and a sense of guilt before a holy God. He refuses to think of himself as being in bondage to sin. He does not admit that he is sick in sin and needs desperately to be cured. And what we all are naturally is exactly this. And by nature, we look at those who do hunger and thirst after righteousness and we say, oh, those religious fanatics. Oh, they are overly concerned about things that are just a waste of time. They are caught in the shackles of religion and they need to be set free. And the reality is, those who are outside of Christ are in the shackles of sin. And it is only the righteousness of Christ that sets them free. No natural man says, I'm not that bad. I'm not perfect, but I'm not some kind of an evil person. I'm not a criminal. And the truth is, in God's sight, we are evil and we are criminals. We have violated his laws and our hearts are set on wickedness. You don't have to teach a little child to be bad. They do that on their own. You have to teach them to be good in as much as it can be taught. Our natural inclination is against God and against what's right and upright in his sight. And so the Christian message and Christ's message here is is offensive to natural man, but let me just add this. It's also offensive to the proud religionist who thinks that he can satisfy God's demands by his own good works and by his own self-righteousness. Paul describes these in Romans 10 in these words, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. And far from being impressed with self-righteousness, God is insulted by our self-righteousness. Well, let me hasten on here. What Christ is describing here as hungering and thirsting after righteousness is a spiritual state of intense longing and desire. It is 
in a word, conviction of sin and longing for that sin to be removed that separates us from God and to be in fellowship with Him. The Lord is not describing here a natural desire for improvement. There are many people who will say, I know I've got this problem in my life. I know I need to work on this and I'm going to make my New Year's resolution and try to improve and, or turn over a new leaf mid-year or whatever. That is not at all what Jesus is talking about here. He isn't talking about any desire that occurs naturally in us. But a desire that occurs only supernaturally. As he works deep within our soul. To cause us to long for and crave and earnestly desire to be right in his sight. The spiritual state that he's describing here is not to minimize our sin and say, well, I have a little problem and I just need a little solution. I have a little hunger and thirst. It's not very much. And uh, if things don't get worse, I'll be okay. No. He's talking about a deep hunger and a great thirst. This is the soul that says, I'm a sinner. I'm nothing but a sinner. All I've ever done is sin in God's sight. I can't do anything right in His sight. I'm justly condemned by Him. And if I came anywhere near God, I would defile His presence. And I long for righteousness with which to appear before Him. And be accepted by him. This is the spiritual state Christ is describing. And to use terms of hunger and thirst means that it's not just a passing interest. But it is a consuming desire. It's, it's like hunger and thirst. Once you're hungry and thirsty, really in a profound way. It's inescapable. You can't think about anything else. When I was in, I think, the ninth grade or so in school, I read this story of these men who were uh, in an airplane in World War II, shot down over the Pacific, and they had a raft that inflated. And I think uh, three of them survived on this raft for over a month out in the Pacific Ocean. They caught a little rainwater to drink. They took a pocket knife and attached it to a stick that they found and were able to spear some fish, just enough to keep their bones from collapsing upon themselves. And though it was many years ago, I remember distinctly this line in the book that the subject of conversation every waking hour was food, food. It's all they could think about. Food, the hunger, what they used to eat, what their favorite food was, if they're rescued, what they want to eat, and so on. 
that's what happens when a person is really hungry and thirsty. Spiritually speaking, it must be the same way. Nothing else can, can satisfy if you're hungry. You can't be distracted by other little things. Take a baby that's hungry and it lets you know that it's hungry by its cries. And you can give it toys and you can distract it with this and that. That, does, that, that doesn't affect the hunger. That doesn't satisfy the hunger. That baby's going to keep crying until it gets fed. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Being so miserable in sin that nothing can satisfy except righteousness. Nothing is right as long as I'm not right with God. It's a constant pain and burden. And a little religiosity doesn't suffice. A few rituals do not satisfy this deep hunger to be accepted by God and have a righteousness that is that meets his approval. I'm unrighteous. God demands righteousness. What shall I do? What hope is there for me? Well, the rest of the Beatitude says, for they shall be filled. Here's what Christ promises to the hungry and thirsty. Filling. To be full. Not just a little ration, but an abundance. A great supply. Fullness. Satisfaction. Eating and drinking until the pain of hunger is gone and the burn of thirst is quenched. And what is it to eat and drink spiritually? It is to find in Christ the righteousness that we need. It is to find what we have craved in him it is to find in Christ the perfection that God's justice requires of us which we could never achieve on our own it is to come to enjoy this perfection wrought by Christ a God wrought righteousness Christ is made unto us righteousness 1 Corinthians 1 says He is our righteousness. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. And so as we've seen in each of these Beatitudes, so likewise here, there is something implied between the first part of the verse and the second part. (coughs) And what's implied is that the spiritually hungry soul feeds on Christ. That is, Believes on him, rests upon him, and finds satisfaction 
of the deepest needs of the soul in Christ. And that brings him to a state of fullness, being filled. We still use that terminology to this day, don't we? When you get up from a big meal, you say, man, I'm full. And that, that full feeling, there's nothing quite like it. It's a great blessing. And, oh, the joy of the soul that comes to feed on Christ and finds righteousness in him, knows the joy of, of peace with God, acceptance with him, assurance of a right state with him. There's nothing like it, no feeling like it. <clears throat> and here's where perhaps the, the physical parallel and illustration does not suffice. Spiritually speaking, the more you eat and drink, the greater your appetite for Christ is. The more of Him you want, the more of Him you crave. And though there is, in a sense, fullness and satisfaction, that craving keeps going on. And we keep eating and drinking of Him who is the bread of life and the water of life. And we've seen in other studies those passages in John 6 and John 4 and John 7 and so on where he uses those terms as the manna from heaven, the bread of life, the water that satisfies. To feed your hungry soul on Christ is to come to him by faith. Trusting in him to put you in a right standing with God. Oh, the joy of being well fed. Christ is fine dining for the soul. And we come to enjoy this fullness when we believe in him. But there's more. And we must emphasize this also. The eternal state of glory is a state of unspeakable fullness, satisfaction, beyond anything that we could know in this life. We read in the book of Revelation, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Though we will enjoy fellowship and communion with Christ, it will be so much better than anything that we have had on this earth that it's stated in, the, in these terms. No more hungering. No more thirsting. Neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Thank God. The, the spiritual satisfaction that begins in this life will be completed and reach a level beyond anything that we can comprehend in the life to come. And that seems to be the emphasis in the passage in Luke, which is somewhat parallel here, where Jesus says, Blessed are ye that hunger now for ye shall be filled. And the, the, including there in Luke's, or in that scene in Luke's 
account with, of the word now seems to emphasize time versus eternity. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. We will be so full in heaven that it will be perfect. Let me remind you just very briefly of how this passage may apply in some ways to our Lord Jesus himself. He came to this earth. He humbled himself as a man. And he says to the disciples in John chapter 4, they were hungry. They'd gone into the village of Sychar to get some food, and they come back, and Jesus says to them, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. There was a hunger and thirst in his soul to do the Father's will. And think of his thirst on the cross of Calvary. Yes, it was physical thirst, but we also see a dimension of spiritual thirst. His soul is thirsty for God, who has forsaken him. Well, after his suffering and death, he rose from the dead. And in the words of Isaiah 53, he's satisfied. And there may be some uh, discussion about the, the persons of the Trinity that are spoken of here, but the verse simply says, He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Christ is rewarded with the highest exaltation and glory and he's full and satisfied. Now let me make one observation and then a few applications here. The observation is we might see something of a progression here in these beatitudes Poor in spirit is to be humbled and empty. Mourning, in verse 4, is to be miserable and grieved. Meek is to be recognizing your unworthiness and to be submissive to God. And now, hungering and thirsting after righteousness is to be desperate for a right standing with God. And there's sort of a building here of, and a progression of actions in the soul. Let us know what it is to be poor in spirit and mourning and meek and hungering and thirsting after righteousness because these are the ones that Christ saves. Now in way of application. If you're not hungry in the sense that Jesus is speaking of here, you should be. All of us should be. 
It is dreadful to think how many multitudes around us today are spiritually starving to death and don't even know it. And why would people starve and not know it? Well, part of it is that they're full of junk food, poor substitutes for the real thing. And there's all kinds of spiritual junk to satisfy the the cravings of the soul in some little superficial way. How many curb their appetite with the things of this world that can't really satisfy in the long run. It's like eating a, a, a big roll of cotton candy when what you need is some good old uh, roast from the crock pot. <clears throat> and there are sinful substitutes of food, spiritually speaking, and there are even things that are not sinful in themselves even legitimate matters that take priority and that we give too much attention to and that become a stumbling block to us and keep us from feeding on Christ as we should. Whatever the case, as in the physical realm, so in the spiritual realm, a lack of appetite for solid food is a sign of impending death. A person who is deathly sick loses appetite. Another thing to consider is Jesus doesn't say, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after blessedness. You know, we make the the byproduct, the main event, naturally. Happy are they who, who hunger after happiness. If you make happiness your goal, you'll never find it. Happiness is only the result of finding righteousness in Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, put happiness in the place of righteousness and you'll never get it. And he quotes of all people, J.N. Darby, but this is one thing he said that was good. When the prodigal son was hungry, he went to feed upon husks. But when he was starving, he turned to his father. Don't be content with the husks that the swine eat. But go to the father and get the fatted calf. For those who think they are full and satisfied without righteousness. The Lord issues this warning once again in the other passage in Luke chapter 6. Woe unto you that are full. For ye shall hunger. In hell, there will be no spiritual bread of life. 
no water of life, not a drop of water for the body, not a drop of water for the soul. And so let me encourage you to hunger for God, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Stop pretending that you're full and admit your hunger, your emptiness. Confess how unfit you are for God and how that you desire more than anything to be fit in his sight. Can you identify with the psalmist when he writes as the heart, that is the the deer, panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. Do you know what it is to hunger and thirst for God and his righteousness? My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And as I've said in other messages, you can starve to death in front of a plate full of food if you refuse to eat. The prodigal son was starving to death even while there was food and more to spare at the father's house. Beloved, there's food and to spare in our heavenly father's house. Don't starve. Come and eat and drink. Bring your appetite to Christ and be satisfied. The gospel feast is spread. The table is set and you're invited. Let him that is a thirst come and whosoever will let him take of the water of life freely. In the words of the Old Testament, Ho, everyone that thirsteth come to the waters and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live. Come to the gospel feast. God does not require you to pay. The bill has already been paid in advance by Jesus Christ. If you try to pay, he as the host will be insulted. He wants you to come and eat freely. All he asks you to bring is a good appetite. you can eat all you want and you can have seconds and thirds here is a case where gluttony is a good thing and you can be ravenous and eat and eat and eat blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled 